Hello, and welcome to the Bizarre and Fascinating Details Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and I've got a great episode for you guys today. In honor of Black History Month, we are featuring four separate episodes honoring people from the Black community that have succeeded or excelled in either politics, music, sports, or business. So today we're going to talk about a woman who I find deeply fascinating, and her name is Josephine Baker. Frida Josephine McDonald was born June 3, 1906, in St. Louis, Missouri. Her mother was Carrie McDonald, and her father was unidentified. Some people say that it was vaudeville drummer Eddie Carson. Other people dispute this claim. In any case, Josephine McDonald spent most of her early life in St. Louis. She grew up in the Chestnut Valley neighborhood of St. Louis, which was racially mixed, and a low-income neighborhood near Union Station. The neighborhood was mostly rooming houses, brothels, and apartments without indoor plumbing, so it was an area of a lot of poverty. It was said that Josephine was poorly dressed and hungry often as a child, and she learned to develop street smarts by playing in railroad yards. Her mother at some point married a man by the name of Arthur Martin, who was kind but didn't really have a good job or permanent employment. But Carrie had a son and two more daughters with her husband, Arthur Martin. Josephine's mother took in laundry to make ends meet, and at eight years old, Josephine began working as a domestic servant for white families. This was a common practice back then to have young girls work in as a live-in domestic in families in certain areas. However, it was not an easy life for Josephine. One of the women abused her, burning her hands when she put too much soap in the laundry. By the age of 12, Josephine had actually dropped out of school and started working as a waitress the following year. She lived on the streets at some points. It was said she slept in cardboard shelters and scavenged for food in local garbage cans. Sometimes she made some extra money by street corner dancing. It was at the old chauffeur's club where Josephine worked as a waitress that she met her first husband, Willie Wells. She married him at the age of 13, but the marriage lasted less than a year. Following her divorce from Wells, she found work with a street performance group. However, her teen years were a struggle, and she didn't really have a healthy relationship with her mother. Her mother, Carrie, did not want her to be an entertainer and scolded her many times for not tending to her husband. She married again a man by the name of William Howard Baker when she was just 15 in 1921. She ended up leaving her second husband when her vaudeville troupe moved to New York City. They divorced in 1925, and it was at this time that she started to see success in her career. Hey, let's talk a little bit about Baker's career. Initially, Baker badgered her show manager in St. Louis to get her gigs. At the age of 13, she headed to New York City, and this was smack dab in the middle of the Harlem Renaissance. And she was performing at the Plantation Club. And after several auditions, she secured a role on a chorus line with a touring company that was very successful. But it was a very competitive industry as well. And feeling like she was going to be overshadowed, she decided to put a little bit of comedy into her routine so that she could stand out from the other dancers. And she did this for quite a while until she ended up sailing to Paris in 1925. She was about 19 years old at that time, 
And she had her first big break in Paris, not in Broadway as many people initially thought. She said she couldn't stand America and the racism that was happening there as well as the violence towards black people. And in Paris, Josephine became an instant success for her erotic dancing and for appearing practically nude while she was on stage. She took a successful tour of Europe and broke her contract to return to France in 1926, where she again had great success. Her performance was called the Danse Savige, and she wore a costume consisting of a skirt that was made of artificial bananas. At the time, the Exposition des Arts Décoratifs had given birth to the term Art Deco, and also a renewal of interest in non-Western forms of art, and this included African art forms. Baker represented one aspect of this fashion. And she also had these kind of quirky little things that she did as well. At one point, she had a pet cheetah with her on stage and her cheetah's name was Chiquita and it had a diamond collar. And the cheetah was famously popular for escaping into the orchestra pit sometimes, terrorizing the musicians. But the show was so exciting because of it. At one point, Baker was considered the most successful American entrepreneur that worked in France. Ernest Hemingway was a huge fan as well. Evidently, he spent hours talking to her in Paris bars. Also, Picasso drew paintings of her, and John Cocteau became friendly with her, helping to vault her into international stardom. She endorsed things like hair gel, bananas, shoes, and cosmetics, and was essentially a huge success. In the 20s, Baker traveled to Yugoslavia. She was one of the first black people to travel there to perform. And she also released her most successful song around this time as well, called Jadu Amour. The song expressed the sentiment that she had two loves, my country and Paris, although some dispute that it was about the U.S. and Paris and say it was instead about the fact that she was bisexual. Baker then took on new management, and this sort of transformed her stage and public persona as well as her singing voice. And she did quite a bit more singing after that. However, despite her popularity in France, Baker never really got the equivalent reputation in America. Time magazine actually referred to her as a, quote, Negro wench whose dancing and singing might be topped anywhere outside of Paris. Others said her voice was too thin and dwarf-like. After these terrible reviews and downright racism in America, she actually returned to Europe heartbroken. It was at that point that she decided to become a legal citizen of France and give up her American citizenship. Baker returned to Paris in 1937 and married the French industrialist Jean Lyon. At the same time, Baker's career was flourishing in France. Then World War II hit, and in September 1939, France declared war on Germany in response to the invasion of Poland. Interestingly enough, Baker was recruited by the French military intelligence agency. She was said to have been an honorable correspondent. During this time, she socialized with the Germans at embassies, ministries, and nightclubs. She was charming them all and performing while secretly gathering information. And it was said that her massive amount of fame enabled her to rub shoulders with high-ranking officials from both the Japanese and the Italian armies. She reported on everything that she heard while she attended parties and gathered information at the Italian embassy. All the while, she didn't raise any suspicion. Josephine also took people into her home who wanted to help free France. 
She specialized in gatherings at embassies and ministries, charming people as she had always done, at the same time trying to remember interesting items to transmit. Then in 1941, she went to North Africa. She claimed that she was having health issues, but the real reason is she wanted to help the French resistance. She was on a base near Morocco and she took tours of Spain, all the while pinning notes with information she gathered inside of her underwear. But Josephine's health was doing very poorly at this time. At one point, she did suffer a miscarriage and developed an infection as a result that was so severe she had to get a hysterectomy. She ended up getting even worse and developed periantitis and septus. After she recovered from these tremendous health issues, she started entertaining British, French, and American soldiers in North Africa, all the while gathering information for the resistance. And after the war, Baker was awarded the Resistance Medal by the French Committee of National Liberation and also numerous other honors by the French military. Baker married one last time to French composer Jo Bouillon, but this ended around the time that she adopted her 11th child. After the war, Baker returned back to France in about 1949. And bolstered by her wartime heroism and the recognition that she received for it, she reinvented herself yet again. She even went back to the U.S. to perform in nightclubs and worked to help desegregate the club's audience. She followed this up with a national tour to rave reviews and enthusiastic audiences who loved her, especially in Harlem, where she was named NAACP's Woman of the Year. However, this is not to say there weren't still issues. There was an incident at the Stork Club in October 1951. Baker felt very strongly that the club's unwritten policy of discouraging Black patrons was just wrong. And when she spoke out about it, she felt betrayed when a columnist did not rise to her offense, but instead ensured that she got her work visa pulled and she was forced to cancel all of her engagements and go back to France. It was almost 10 years before she was allowed back into the U.S. But this didn't seem to matter much to her. She was invited by Fidel Castro in 1966 to perform in Cuba, and she was still wildly popular in Europe. However, she was facing some financial issues, which we're going to talk a little bit more about later. In addition to her wartime support for France, she supported the civil rights movement as well during the 1950s, visiting New York with her husband. They realized they were refused reservations at 36 different hotels because of racial discrimination. And this upset Baker so much that she wrote about this in a series of articles. She also was traveling in the South and really was seeing what it was like for the Black people in this country. In response to this, she refused to perform at segregated audiences, even though she was offered a lot of money to perform at different places like the Miami Club. But when she made her demands, the club eventually met them, and her insistence on these mixed audiences really helped to integrate live entertainment in Vegas. After this particular incident at the Miami Club, she did get threatening phone calls, though, by people claiming to be from the KKK. Her career in the U.S., though, was still marred by racism. There were other problems at Sherman Billingley's Stork Club, where she had been refused service. And interestingly enough, Grace Kelly, the actress who was at the club when this happened, went over to Baker, took her by the arm, and the two stormed out of this club together. 
And it was said that the two women became very close after that particular incident. And when Baker was dealing with her financial problem, she was very near bankruptcy. Grace Kelly, at that time, the princess consort, offered her a villa and some financial assistance. All the while, Baker was working with the NAACP and gaining this reputation as a crusader for civil rights. She was presented with a lifetime membership to the NAACP, and she wrote letters in support of people who were also fighting racism. And then in 1963, she spoke at the March on Washington at the side of Reverend Martin Luther King. She was the only official female speaker at that time, which was pretty amazing. And she wore her French uniform and introduced women for civil rights. It's said as well that after Martin Luther King was assassinated, Coretta Scott King actually approached Baker in the Netherlands to ask her if she would take Martin Luther King's place as leader of the civil rights movement. Baker thought it over for a few days and ended up declining, saying that her children were too young to lose their mother. So one of the other things that Baker was really well known for was adopting children to form a family that she called her, quote, rainbow tribe. She wanted to prove that children of different ethnicities and religions could still be brothers and get along and have successful relationships. She also arranged tours so visitors could walk the grounds of her house and see how natural and happy her children were in the, quote, rainbow tribe. Her estate had farm rides and the children would sing and dance for audiences. All in all, she had two daughters and 10 sons. She had a French-born, a Moroccan-born, a Japanese-born, a Colombian-born, a Finnish-born, another French-born, an Algerian-born, an Ivorian, and a Venezuelan child. So for the most part, Baker lived with her children in this enormous chateau in France, but then ended up losing it due to unpaid debts. This was when Princess Grace stepped in and offered her the apartment in Monaco. Shortly thereafter, she went on stage at the Olympia in Paris and performed a very successful act to rave reviews. Demand for seating was so high that fold-out chairs had to be brought in to accommodate the huge audiences. It's said that the opening night audience included Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Shirley Bassey, Diana Ross, and Liza Minnelli. But four days later, Josephine was found lying peacefully in her bed. She had all of the newspapers around her with the glowing reviews of her performance. She was in a coma. She was suffering from a cerebral hemorrhage. She was taken to the hospital where she died shortly thereafter at the age of 68 on April 12th, 1975. She received a Catholic funeral, which drew more than 20,000 mourners. She was the only American woman to receive full French military honors at her funeral, which was a pretty massive procession. Baker was then interred at Monaco's Cinematary de Monaco. And I want to finish up this episode with a really interesting article that sums up how successful and fascinating and interesting Josephine Baker truly was. And it's 40 fascinating facts about the fabulous Josephine Baker. And Khalid El Hassan wrote this article. Josephine Baker was the first black woman to become a world famous entertainer or to star in a major movie. Dubbed the Black Pearl, Bronze Venus, and Creole Goddess, she was an American-born entertainer, renowned dancer, jazz age symbol, 1920s icon, war heroine, and civil rights activist. She moved to France and made it her home. When her adopted homeland was conquered by Germany in World War II, she joined the French resistance and repeatedly risked her life in clandestine work against the Nazis. 
After the war, she became active in the struggle for race equality both in the U.S. and around the world. Here are 40 fascinating facts about her life as a pioneer, an icon, and a heroine. 40. Her parentage was shrouded in mystery. She was born Frida Josephine McDonald in St. Louis, Missouri, purportedly the daughter of a drummer named Eddie Carson. However, her mother, Carrie McDonald, of mixed African-American and Native American heritage, had been admitted into an exclusively white hospital in May of 1906. She stayed there for weeks until Josephine was born. Admission of a person of color to a white hospital was almost unheard of during the era of segregation. The likeliest explanation was that Josephine's mother, who worked for a wealthy German family, had been impregnated by her employer, who then pulled strings to get Carrie admitted into the city's best hospital. Number 39. She appeared on stage as a baby. Carrie McDonald and Eddie Carson, Josephine Baker's mother and nominal father, were vaudeville performers who had a song and dance act they put on whenever possible. When Josephine was only a year old, her parents began incorporating her into their performance and displayed her on stage during their act's finale. Being on stage as a baby was an arbinger of many things to come for Baker, and she remained immersed in show business during her childhood, growing up in a neighborhood that housed many vaudeville theaters and entertainment venues. 38. She rose from extreme poverty. The glitter and glamour of theater and the stage did not mask the fact that Josephine Baker's parents struggled to make ends meet. She was raised in poverty in a low-income neighborhood that consisted mostly of boarding houses, brothels, and apartments without running water or indoor plumbing. Growing up, Baker often went hungry and was always poorly dressed in hand-me-downs. Playing with other urchins in the rail yard and along the tracks, she developed street smarts that served her well in her future career. Number 37, she had to work as a child. Josephine Baker's purported father abandoned the family soon after her birth. Soon thereafter, her mother married a nice man with whom she had three more children. However, Baker's stepfather had trouble getting or hanging on to a job and his chronic unemployment forced the family deeper into poverty. Her mother took in laundry and at age eight, Baker pitched in to make ends meet by working as a live-in domestic and babysitter for white families who often instructed the black child not to, quote, kiss the baby. Her employers were sometimes abusive, such as the one who burned her hands as punishment for putting too much soap in the laundry. Number 36, she had to quit school and live on the streets. Growing up in such conditions, the young girl's schooling was spotty and her education was put on the back burner. Eventually, Baker was forced to drop out of school altogether at the age of 12, having progressed only to the fifth grade. For a while, she lived as a street kid in St. Louis slums, sleeping in cardboard boxes, scavenging for food, and earning a little bit of money every now and again by dancing on street corners. Things stabilized a bit when she got a job at the age of 13 as a full-time waitress. While waiting tables, she met and married a man named Willie Wells, but things quickly soured between them and she got a divorce. Number 35, she was married and divorced four times. Self-reliant since an early age, Josephine Baker, unlike most women of her era, was never dependent on a man for financial support. That translated into significant freedom, and one result of that was that Baker never hesitated to leave a relationship when things started going south. After divorcing Willie Wells, she married and divorced three more times. Willie Baker in 1921, whose name she kept, Frenchman Jean Leon in 1937, through which she secured French citizenship, and then French orchestra leader Joe Bouillon in 1947, who helped raise her 12 adopted children. 
number 34. She launched her showbiz career as a comedian. In 1919, Baker got a professional entertaining start with the Jones Family Band and the Dixie Steppers. She performed a variety of comical skits there. When the troops split, she tried out for a spot as a chorus girl with the Dixie Steppers in a production called Shuffle Along, but was rejected because she was too skinny and too dark. Undaunted, Baker stayed on as a dresser and learned the chorus girl's routine in her free time. When a dancer unexpectedly left, Baker was the obvious replacement and she made the most of her opportunity. She put a comic spin on her performance and deliberately acted clumsy, rolling her eyes on stage and the audience ate it up. Baker became a mainstay and a box office draw for the rest of the show's run. For 33, she had a fraught relationship with her mother. Baker had a tempestuous relationship with her mother. Carrie McDonald had tried her hand as an entertainer and having experienced its struggles and seediness, ended up in dire poverty at the end of it. She decided after that that nothing good could come of showbiz, so she constantly badgered and berated her daughter for trying to make a career as an entertainer. She also scolded Baker for neglecting her second husband. Things got worse between mother and daughter when Baker ditched her husband to go on tour before eventually divorcing him in 1925. The fact that Baker proved her mother wrong when her career took off only worsened matters. Number 32, her career took off in Harlem. Baker's rise coincided with the Harlem Renaissance, an artistic, social, and intellectual explosion centered in Harlem, New York during the 1920s. Unfortunately, Baker's early comic career revolved around blackface performances in New York clubs, a demeaning form of entertainment of which her mother disapproved, and which further soured the mother-daughter relationship. Her comic dance routines in those days typically called for her to bumble and stumble through her act as if she was a ditz who didn't know what she was doing. Then during the encore, she would close out by performing the routine correctly with added layers of complexity exceeding those of the other dancers. It was such a hit that she was billed as the highest paid chorus girl in vaudeville. Number 31, she became a runway success in Paris. Josephine Baker did relatively well in New York City, but 1920s America was not exactly a great era for Black people seeking to realize their full potential. Growing tired of the glass ceiling of racism that capped her career prospects, Baker decided to bet on herself by leaving America in search of greener pastures abroad. In 1925, at the age of 19, she headed to Paris, where she opened Le Revue Negre. In the City of Light, she became an immediate hit with her erotic dancing performed semi-nude. Number 30, her signature act in Paris caused a sensation. In Paris, Josephine Baker remade herself into a glamorous jazz-age cabaret star and took the City of Light by storm. Her signature stage act, which was quite risque, with her performing while clad only in high heels and a skirt made of artificial bananas and a bra that revealed far more than it hid, was scandalous but super exciting to the masses. She sang and danced with wild abandon and erotic frenzy that held the audience spellbound. She was often accompanied by her pet cheetah Chiquita, who wore a diamond collar. The feline would sometimes escape into the orchestra pit, terrifying the musicians and further enhancing the wildness of her act. For 29, she revolutionized stage dancing. Josephine Baker's banana-skirted dance, which became famous in Paris as the Danse Savige, won her world renowned. 
It went beyond a signature fashion statement and revolutionized how dancers thought of movement itself. As one scholar put it, where European dancers showed the front presenting the body as a unified line, Baker contrived to move different parts of her body to different rhythms. Most shocking to dance purists, she used her backside, shaking it, as one of her biographers says, as though it was an instrument. Number 28, she swept celebrities off their feet. In taking Paris by storm, Josephine Baker also captured the hearts of the modernist art movement's leaders who congregated in the City of Light. Pablo Picasso jumped at the chance to paint her, seeking to capture her alluring beauty and saying that she had legs of paradise. Ernest Hemingway called her the most sensational woman anyone ever saw, and French director Jean Chaquieu also set out to make her a movie star, although her film success was limited to silent films in Europe. For 27, she credited Paris with making her a superstar. Baker remained forever grateful to Paris for providing her with a platform for which she vaulted to greatness. As she stated in a 1974 interview, no, I didn't get my first break on Broadway. I was only in the chorus and shuffle along and chocolate dandies. I became famous first in France in the 20s. I just couldn't stand America and I was one of the first colored Americans to move to Paris. She came to regard France as her new home, one that afforded her opportunities that the color of her skin had denied her in America. Number 26, she became world famous. Baker thrived in the integrated Paris of the 1920s. After La Revue Negre ran its course, she starred in La Folie du Jour, in which she continued to wow audiences with jaw-dropping performances. Before long, Josephine Baker came to rival Mary Pickford and Gloria Swanson as the world's most photographed woman. By 1927, within two years of her arrival in France, Baker was Europe's highest paid entertainer, male or female. In the early 30s, she starred in a pair of movies and moved her family from St. Louis to come and live with her on her French estate. Number 25, she was managed by a fake count. Early in her French career, Josephine Baker met Sicilian Giuseppe Papito Abatino, who introduced himself as a count. In reality, he was no aristocrat, but a former stonemason. Nonetheless, he convinced her to let him manage her, and he succeeded in transforming her stage and public persona. Baker thrived under his handlings, and eventually the two became lovers. They would have married were it not for the fact that Baker was still married to her second husband, Willie Baker. 24. Men fought a duel over her. In 1928, while staying in Budapest, Josephine was ogled by a Hungarian cavalry captain who made advances toward her. That didn't sit well with her manager and on and off lover, so he challenged the Hungarian officer to a sword duel. The challenge was accepted and the duo went at each other with swords in a cemetery while Josephine watched from atop a tombstone. She stopped the fight when her manager took a shoulder wound. Honorless satisfied, the two men shook hands and quashed their beef. For 23, she was bisexual. In a straight-laced and prudish era, Josephine Baker did little to hide the open secret of her bisexuality. She had several female lovers dating back to the start of her career in America, where segregation laws prohibited her from checking into hotels and forced her instead into boarding houses. She ended up composing odes to her roommates, such as her most famous song, J'adou Amour, I Have Two Loves. Many assumed the song was about the United States and France, her birth and adopted countries. However, with the subtext parsed, years later it became clear that the song's sexuality was not metaphorical, but was about actual sex with males and females. Number 22. 
Her list of female lovers was long. Josephine Baker had a who's who list of female lovers who were famous in their day. They included blues singer Clara Smith, jazz singer Ada Smith, actresses Mildred Smallwood, and Evelyn Shepard, as well as politician Bessie Allison. Most famous of her lovers, perhaps, was Mexican artist Frida Kahlo. She met Baker during a trip to Paris in 1939, and the two hit it off. Awkwardly, Frida Kahlo was traveling with her husband on a European trip when she had her affair with Baker. Number 21, she got no love in the 1930s in America. While European audiences embraced and adored Baker, American ones did not. In 1936, she returned to her homeland to star in the Ziegfeld Follies on Broadway, but it turned into a disaster. A black woman with so much sophistication and power was not popular with American audiences who roundly rejected her and to the media who ran scathing reviews of her shows. Time magazine, for example, dismissed her as a, quote, Negro wench. The box office numbers were unimpressive and Baker ended up getting replaced. Number 20, she became a French citizen. After more than a decade of success and adulation in France and Europe, Josephine Baker was dismayed by the way she was treated and the racism she endured upon returning to her country of birth. She had changed, but America had not. In 1937, she returned to France brokenhearted, and the experience contributed to her decision to abandon her U.S. citizenship and become a French national instead. Back in Paris, she married French industrialist Jean Leon and got naturalized as a citizen of France. Number 19, she was a big-time animal lover. Baker loved animals, and when a club owner gave her a pet cheetah named Chiquita to use in her dance show, she was ecstatic. She kept the big cat after the act ended and traveled around the world with Chiquita the cheetah by her side, riding in cars and sleeping in her bed. She also had a pet goat named Tutut that lived in her nightclub dressing room, as well as a pet pig named Albert, upon which she doted. She groomed him and gussied him up with expensive perfumes. Albert lived in the nightclub's kitchen where he got so fat from feeding on scraps that at one point he became too big to make it out of the door, so the door frame had to be broken down. Number 18, she became a secret agent in World War II. When World War II broke out, Josephine Baker was recruited by the French military intelligence. She had initially expressed support for the Italian invasion of Ethiopia in the 30s, so when the Axis powers defeated and occupied France, they assumed Baker was friendly to their cause. As it turned out, she was anything but. Taking advantage of the occupier's trust, she risked her life in the clandestine work for the Allies. Her celebrity and fame opened doors, and rubbing shoulders with high-ranking Axis personnel, she charmed officials she met in social gatherings to collect information. Number 17, she risked her life to resist the Nazis. Baker was well-positioned to stick it to the Nazis as an international entertainer. She had an excuse to travel, and she did, from Nazi-occupied Europe to to neutral Portugal, and to South America. She transported coded messages written in invisible ink in her music sheets between the French Renaissance and the Allies. They contained information about German troop concentrations, airfields, harbors, and defenses, all of which Baker smuggled beneath the Nazis' noses. She also hid fugitives in her home, supplying them with forged identification papers and visas obtained through her contacts. Number 16. She took her spy work to North Africa. 
1941, under cover of health reasons and doctor's orders after a bout of pneumonia, Josephine Baker left German-occupied Europe for French North Africa. In reality, she was there to furnish assistance to the, to the resistance. Basing herself out of Morocco, she traveled back and forth to fascist Spain, gathering information and transmitting it to allied intelligence. Counting on her celebrity to avoid a strip search, she pinned notes of intelligence gathered into her underwear. Number 15, she almost died of a miscarriage. Over the years, Baker had several miscarriages, and while conducting her clandestine work in North Africa and Spain, she had one that almost claimed her life. She developed an infection that was so severe she needed a complete hysterectomy. Then things got worse when the infection spread and when she ended up with septus. After recovering, she began touring to entertain Allied soldiers who had then landed in North Africa. Later in the war, she joined the French Women's Auxiliary Air Force in which she was commissioned as a lieutenant and kept putting on shows for Allied troops. Number 14. She returned to the U.S. and became a civil rights activist. After the war, Josephine Baker reinvented herself as a mature entertainer unafraid of serious subject matter or music. It worked and she quickly reestablished herself as one of Paris's biggest draws. In 1951, she was invited back to the U.S. to perform in a Miami nightclub. There, she launched the latest iteration of her career as a civil rights activist. Refusing to put up with racial segregation, she launched a public relations campaign that succeeded in, in desegregating the club's audience. Number 13, she was a civil rights icon. Josephine Baker's success in desegregating her audiences transformed her into an early icon of the civil rights movement. That was just the beginning, as it was gathering steam in the early 50s. Following her Miami gig, she launched a national tour that stood in stark contrast to her 1936 Broadway experience. Instead of derision and scorn, this time she had sold-out shows and was greeted by enthusiastic audiences and rave reviews. It culminated with a parade in Harlem attended by over 100,000 people in honor of her receiving the 1951 NAACP Woman of the Year Award. Number 12, her fame did not spare her from racism. She might have succeeded in desegregating her audiences in Miami, but that turned out to be a rare win during her 1951 American tour. Despite her celebrity and fame, the strictures of segregation meant she still had difficulty finding accommodations, and not just in the American South. During her U.S. tour, Baker and her husband were turned down by 36 different hotels. Such experiences only further fueled her determination to join in the struggle for civil rights. Number 11, she adopted a dozen children. Today, there is nothing unusual about celebrities adopting children of ethnicities other than their own. Things were different, however, back in the 50s when Josephine Baker started adopting orphan children from all over the world. In a bid to combat racism and set an example, she started off by adopting two Japanese orphans, then kept adopting more and more kids from different countries and ethnicities. As she put it, she wanted to demonstrate that children of different ethnicities and religions could still be brothers. Number 10, the Rainbow Tribe. Josephine Baker, who had no biological children of her own and whose wartime hysterectomy forever closed that possibility for her, eventually ended up adopting 12 children. They hailed from Algeria, Colombia, Finland, France, Israel, the Ivory Coast, Korea, Morocco, Japan, and Venezuela. Baker dubbed them the Rainbow Tribe and lived with them in her French estate, which also doubled as a resort with a hotel, farm, rides, and the Rainbow Tribe singing for audiences. She saw her children as living metaphors of what humanity could be like in an attack against racism. Number nine, she was tight with Grace Kelly. 
Hollywood star Grace Kelly was one of Josephine Baker's best buddies. The friendship reportedly began in 1951 when racist waiters at the store club, a then-famous New York City nightclub and restaurant, refused to serve the black singer. Kelly berated the waiters and managers, then angrily stalked out of the prestigious club in a show of solidarity with Baker, vowing to never patronize the establishment again. Years later, Kelly, by then the Princess of Monaco, returned in company with her husband, the Prince of Monaco. Number eight, she was kicked out of the U.S. The Stork Club incident ended up getting Josephine Baker kicked out of the U.S. She berated a newspaper columnist who was an old acquaintance and one who had been at the Stork Club at the time for not defending her. The infuriated man retaliated by accusing Baker of being a communist sympathizer, which was a serious charge in the 1950s at the height of the Cold War's Red Scare and the McCarthyism era. As a result, Baker's work visa was terminated and she had to leave the U.S. She was not allowed back to America for another decade. Number seven, NAACP bigwig and controversy. Baker's stand against racism and segregation won her the admiration of the NAACP, leading it to declare Sunday, May 20th, 1951, Josephine Baker Day. She was also presented with an NAACP lifetime membership by Nobel Prize winner Ralph Bunch. However, her assertiveness and outspokenness alarmed many. By 1951, Baker was an accomplished celebrity and a decorated war heroine, oozing self-confidence, not exactly what many expected of black women. Some black people even shunned her, fearing she would harm the cause by demanding too much too soon. Nonetheless, Baker persisted in supporting civil rights, even from abroad. In 1963, after she was finally allowed back into the U.S., she spoke at the March on Washington at Martin Luther King's side. Wearing her free French uniform and her wartime decorations and medals, Baker was the only official female speaker at the event. Number six, performing in the Eastern Bloc. Josephine Baker was not a communist, but she had nothing against performing in communist countries. In 1966, Fidel Castro invited her to perform in Havana as the guest of honor and headliner of the Cuban Revolution's seventh anniversary celebrations. She put on a spectacular performance that broke attendance records, and two years later she visited Yugoslavia where she performed in today's Serbia and Macedonia. Number five, her platonic marriage to artist Robert Brady. Baker, who was married and divorced four times, developed a close friendship with American artist Robert Brady. Late in life, after divorcing her fourth husband, Joe Bouillon, she sought companionship and friendship on a more platonic level. Brady felt the same, so in September of 1973, during a trip to Acapulco, Mexico, the two entered an empty church and exchanged marriage vows. No clergy were present, and it was not a legally binding marriage. She told a few people about it, though, fearing ridicule from the press, but it was an important bond that Baker and Brady maintained for the rest of her life. Number four, Princess Grace came through for Baker. In her later years, Josephine Baker fell on some hard times. She lost everything, and she and the children of the Rainbow Tribe were on the verge of becoming homeless when Grace Kelly, by then Princess Grace of Monaco, stepped in to help save her friend by smoothing things over with creditors. Baker ended up losing her chateau in France, but Princess Grace saw to it she had a roof over her head by arranging a villa for her in Monaco. The princess, along with her husband, Prince Rainier, and Jacqueline Kennedy Onassis, also financed a review celebrating 50 years of Baker's career that opened to rave reviews in Paris. Number three, she went out on a high note. 
Josephine Baker's highly acclaimed review in 1975 proved to be her last hurrah. It opened on April 8, 1975 with performances at the Bobino Music Hall in Paris, where most of the biggest names of the 20th century French music had performed. The show called Josephine uh, Babino 1975 celebrated 50 years of her entertainment career and was a smashing success. Demand for seats was so high that fold-out chairs had to be added to accommodate the throngs who included Diana Ross, Sophia Loren, Mick Jagger, Liza Minnelli, and other celebrities. Four days later, she was found lying in a coma in her bed surrounded by newspapers containing glowing reviews of her show. She had suffered a brain hemorrhage and died April 12, 1975. Number two, she received a heroine's burial. In recognition of her heroic wartime efforts and contributions to France, Josephine Baker had been named Cavalier of the Légion d'Honneur by Charles de Gaulle. Among the medals awarded to her by the French military were the the Croix de Guerre and the Medal of Resistance with Rosette. Upon her death, her funeral became the occasion for a huge procession, and Baker became the first and only American woman to receive full French military honors at her burial, complete with honor guard and gun salutes. For one, her influence continued well after her death. Dance historians credited Josephine Baker with being the Beyonce of her day and with revolutionizing onstage performances. In her day, she was actually bigger than Beyonce, who paid Baker tribute in 2006 by performing her banana dance in the Radio City Music Hall. Baker's legacy extends beyond her public career, and her private life seems to influence celebrities to this day. In 2003, Angelina Jolie cited Baker and the Rainbow Tribe as the model for the multiracial and multicultural family she was then beginning to create through adoption. Interesting stuff indeed, and it seems that Josephine Baker was an amazing woman who was born well before her time. We have put all of the notes, all of the articles, and everything that we have referenced from the show today into the show notes for the show, so you can go check those out if you want to know more information about Josephine Baker. And if you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can shoot us an email. We're at thebfdpodcast at gmail.com. We do occasionally post pictures from the episodes as well. We're at the BFD Podcast. And please join us again next week when we talk about more weird, wacky, and wild stories, including amazing people. Good night, podcast peeps. Stay safe, keep it real, and always live your very best life. Bye!